guys here? It's on? Yeah, cool. I'm using this mic, which is actually good because it keeps my feet planted. Um, so roughly 500 years ago, uh, we had uh, in, the, in the church uh, probably one of the biggest um, changes, really, a reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, for many, many, many years, uh, there was confusion about what it meant to be saved, uh, what it meant to know Christ. And, and some of you are, are familiar with the famous Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, though he is famous, but Martin Luther, who uh, saw the abuses of the Catholic Church and nailed what's called the 95 Theses to the door of church in Wittenberg. And um, just, an, just an awesome story there. One of the things that people probably don't know, we, we, we love that and we love the, the Diet of Worms and, and all of these things and him, you know, Luther making his stand and all that stuff that's really cool. Um, here's what's interesting, though. Some people took that as an opportunity to uh, rebel, revolt, and, and sort of do it in the name of Protestantism. Not necessarily uh, by any means Luther or people that really understood what uh, Protestantism is in its spiritual sense, but some people took it as a political uh, action to revolt and uh, to do some really uh, bad and, and violent things. Here's the deal, though. Uh, as sort of a response to that, the Catholic Church, uh, particularly in France, uh, began to really persecute severely, put to death, uh, many Protestants in France. Now, there was one man named John who wasn't, he's, he's French himself, uh, but he wasn't living in France during this persecution. He was actually living in Geneva, Switzerland. And John heard about his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted in France, and obviously this really disturbed him. I mean, this is, this is massive. So what he did was he wrote a letter, which later became a book, to the king of France, right? And, and this book, he wanted, them to he wanted the king to know that Protestants are not war-bent revolutionaries. That's not what they're on about. Uh, they're on about the gospel. They're on about knowing exactly who Christ is. And so he wrote this. Here's, here's a copy. Here's a paperback copy. If it's not the first copy. But it's, this book is called Institutes of the Christian. I'm holding that upside down, aren't I? Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's by this guy named John Calvin. Now, um, it's a decent-sized book. One of the things that you can see, one of the things that Calvin talks about in this work is, again, he's trying to make the focus on Christ, right? And that Christ is our great prophet, our great high priest, and our king. So Calvin really brings together what's called this threefold office of the works, the person and work of Jesus. In fact, Calvin probably did this more than, more than anyone in history up to that point. Now, that's nice for Calvin. It was like 500 years ago. We live in Australia, Central Coast. Why is that relevant, right? We, there's not a huge persecution at the moment breaking out in France, and we don't have all this stuff going on. So, like, I don't know. What's, is this just, like, why, why, why are we doing this? Like, why, why am I even talking about this? Why are we even having this, 
this series called Threefold Office. Is this just another theologically dense egghead sort of series? And Nicole happened to make a cool logo, and so we're just going to do it. Uh, like, why, why, why are we doing this? What, what, what's, what's happening here? Look, the goal of all of this, the reason that we're even talking about this, is to know Christ, to know him more, to delight in him more, in his person and his work. Because the threefold office brings Christ's person and work together. I mean, was this not the aim of Paul, the apostle's ministry? What did Paul say? To know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you hear it? What does Paul say to the church in Corinth? To know nothing amongst you except Christ Jesus, there's his person, here comes his work, and him crucified. Listen, we need to study Christ's threefold office because it keeps together both who he is and what he does. Who he is and what he does. The Bible never separates these two. Who he is leads to a certain kind of redemptive work that he does on our behalf. Once we say he's prophet, he's priest, he's king, we're automatically making a statement about who he is as well as what he does. To say that he is the final prophet of God is also making a claim about who he is. To say that he is the great high priest is making a claim about who he is. To say that he is the king of kings and lord of lords is making a claim about who he is. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the Colin Buchanan song, right? Jesus is number one, but at the top where he belongs, who he is and what he's done. Hear it? Make Jesus number one. Come on. Anyway, if you don't know who that is, you haven't lived. Colin Buchanan, put it on your Spotify. There you go. So, reflecting upon Christ's threefold office brings together, rightly, his person and work. His, his work on our behalf. It reminds us as well, friend, it reminds you, it reminds me of our need for him our need for Christ, our human sinfulness, our need. I mean, think of a prophet for a second. What does a prophet do? Tell us that we need the truth of God, right? We need the revelation of God. We need it finally and definitively. Who provides that? Christ. The prophets give it to us. Yet he is that which brings all the prophets together. He is the final self-disclosure of God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Think about a priest. Or why we need a priest. It's because we're unclean. We're defiled. We're guilty. 
Christ meets that every need in his high priestly work on our behalf. We also need a king. We need a king to rule over us. We need a king to defeat our greatest enemy. We need a king to subdue our hearts. You see, listen, if by the end of this series, and this is the next few weeks, by the end of this series, you're able to see, to grasp, to feel, not, not, not just a sort of, you know, when Calvin wrote the Institutes, he was concerned that people just were cold about these titles, that they can just sort of rattle off this information. But he wanted, he wanted his hearers, when we wrote the Institutes, to feel these truths in the text of Scripture. We, we can actually feel that Christ is and know in our heart of hearts that he is the all-sufficient one. If you can better grasp by the end of this three-week three series your need for Christ and that him alone is sufficient for your every need, mission accomplished. I mean, your heart, if that's true, will naturally delight in him and want to share him with others. Whenever something is of tremendous value to you, Whenever you treasure something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there, there is an inevitable longing that you draw others' attention to it so that they too can share your high regard for it. So it is with knowing and delighting in Christ. You see, it's the overflow. You want to share about him. Not just now try to roll up your sleeves and get to work and do ministries. That's backwards. It's knowing and delighting in Christ and then having that be the overflow. Listen how Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg put it. I say this, being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Christ. That's why we're doing this series. To, to know Christ, to think long and lovingly on him, to be captivated by him. As the author of Hebrews says, let us consider Jesus. That's why we're doing this series. But there's another reason we're doing this series as well. We want to see Christ in all of Scripture. We don't want to just see where his name is listed, but we want to see that there are shadows in the Old Testament, that become finally disclosed in the person and work of Christ. I mean, think about it this way. Once you say that Jesus is priest, sorry, did, did Jesus, was he the great high priest during his lifetime? As in, like, literally, did he walk around in that office in Jerusalem? No. But we know that he fulfills that role as great high priest, right? So, see, what you're doing is you're reading backwards, you're, you're able to pick up, and this is so important because one of the things that Christians stink at today is basic hermeneutics. Sorry, 
I know that sounds arrogant. I, I'm, lear I'm learning too, okay? But basic, just understanding how to read the Bible. So you, you're, able to, you're able to see the, even the office of prophet, even the office of king. You're able to now read backwards and understand the Old Testament and see it how it's fulfilled in light of the new. Does that make sense? I, sorry, I didn't mean to sound like arrogant, like, you know, scrooge and stink. I stink at a lot of things, okay? You all know that. Don't say amen. Okay. <laughs> but this is, I, I want us to see the big picture of the Bible. That's the point, okay? That, that's I, to, to grasp the, the greater, bigger picture. So, like, for instance, you have, uh, I, I, I mentioned priest, but you have uh, David, King David. Right? And you have David's sons. But that points forward ultimately to the greater son of David. That's why Matthew starts the gospel the way he do does, right? Um, you have a promise in Genesis 3.15. Everyone still tracking with me? Still with me? You have a promise in Genesis 3.15. And what is that? After Adam and Eve sinned, they're separated from God, that one day you have a seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent, right? One day, you'll you know, crush his head. Well, you have lots of seeds, as it were, different leaders doing things, crushing the serpent's head throughout, but, but they ultimately fail, and only one finally succeeds, and that's the ultimate seed of the woman, that is Christ himself. You see, we, we, have, we have to read all of Scripture and see how Christ is the centerpiece it's not about anything else, really, except there's a thousand things we can talk about. There are important, have their place. But the centerpiece of reading the Bible, friend, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Period. So that's why we're doing this. We're doing this because we want to know Christ and see Him in all of Scripture. Today, I want us to think and zero in on this idea as Christ as prophet, prophet. And we'll sort of hang our hat on two thoughts. The first is that Christ is, he's the anticipated prophet. So we have prophets in the Old Testament, but again, shadows. But Christ finally steps in, fulfills this role as, as the true and final prophet. And then lastly, Jesus is, because he's the final prophet, because he is uh, well, I guess that's it. He's the final prophet. So there you go. So that's where we're headed. Jesus, he's this anticipated prophet, and then he is the final prophet. So simple enough, right? We're not going to get super egg eggheadish this morning. I hope not. Uh, but I really hope that we'll benefit to see that, uh, even as Guy was praying earlier, that we, we need the words of Christ this morning. So why don't we, um, why don't we pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to study about your Son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, we need your words now. We need this, the words of your Son, the prophet, priest, king. Lord, would you open eyes this morning, open hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, I used to play basketball when I was in grade 5, 6, 7, and 8. I wasn't very good. But I thought I was, because I grew up as a millennial. And my mom said to me one day, you will probably make the MBA. And she wasn't kidding. 
which is just ridiculous. And, um, well, my dad wanted to encourage that and foster that because whatever makes you happy, right? This is part of being a millennial. If it makes you happy, Sutton will do it, right? And, uh, I mean, they love me, but, you know, that's, that's the boomer's way of raising kids, typically. Not all the time. But, so, um, you know, we, uh, he decided to coach my basketball team. And uh, it was a district, like, you know, you have clubs here, like soccer, like you've got Avoca and Kincumber, go Sharks, right, guys? And, you know, you've got uh, Wyoming and all, and all these different clubs. Well, it was, it was the same where I grew up in San Diego. You had these basketball clubs, and, uh, and they would play amongst each other. And typically, where you grew up, they'd sort of say, oh, if you're from this suburb, we'll, we'll, you know, you're going to play for the, you know, the Sharks, or you're going to play for the Ruse, or you're going to play for whatever, right? And uh, we were okay. Like, the team that sort of was in my suburb, we, we, were, we were a bit average, but my dad wasn't happy about that. So there was about 15 different teams, give or take. And so what my dad did <laughs> was... He, he hated to lose. Uh, he would, every time we'd play a team, uh, there'd be a star player, right? Um, and, and he would always go up to that guy afterwards, particularly with his mom being there, and he'd say, uh, ma'am, I just want to introduce myself. Hey, next season, how would your son like to go to an NBA game? Oh, wow, he would love that. Well, if he plays on my team, I'm assembling a team. He can do that. I'll take, I'll take the, I'll take, if they win, I'll take them all to an NBA game. And so they're like, you imagine the kid, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Mom, can I play for him next season? Yeah, yeah. So my dad did that again and again. Right? The next season, we had the most amazing team imaginable. The only thing is, I rode the bench, ironically. My dad put me in 15 minutes a game, which in basketball is not very much. But we blew everyone out by, like, the no competition. We went on to, like, state finals. We just destroyed. Some of the guys went on to play university, college ball, et cetera. Right? And, and funny thing is I deserved to ride the bench, right? I was just a little white boy on their, on their coattails, basically. Now, if you were handpicking an all-star team of prophets, let's say Old Testament prophets, if you could sort of handpick, you know, your A-team of prophets. You think about the Old Testament. Think about the prophets. Who are some of the people? Who's your all-star team that you pick? Maybe Isaiah. Yeah, there you go. Maybe Zechariah. Maybe Elijah. Jeremiah's a good one. I mean, we won't name off all the prophets, but I mean, certainly I didn't hear, I mean, certainly you'd want to, I didn't hear him, but you'd want to pick Moses, Right? I mean, I mean, Moses is, uh, no, Old Testament prophets. So Moses would be, I mean, the Bible only has this to say about Moses. Look at this in Deuteronomy 34. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Notice, notice the description here. Whom the Lord knew face to face. What a statement. Essentially, God didn't speak as directly with anyone else as he did with Moses. Re remember, Moses was not only Israel's great deliverer, he's also their first prophet. The Lord used him and Aaron to begin this office. You understand? He kicked this whole thing off. After him, 
yep, there were some amazing prophets. There was this, uh, you know, a series of them or a succession of prophets who spoke and wrote God's words. But Moses stands at the pinnacle of the prophetic institution, which makes this passage that I want us to look at in Deuteronomy 18 quite significant. Come with me to Deuteronomy 18, and, and you'll see what I mean here. Deuteronomy 18. This is, um, Deuteronomy is such a, an important book. It's, it's given to the nation of Israel as they're about to head into the promised land, right? It's the renewing the covenant and host of things that's going on with it. And, and Moses, he knows that he's not going into the promised land. He knows that. God's told him that. But he assures the Israelites that when you guys go into the land, God will not leave you empty. He'll actually provide another me, so to speak. Right? Another one of me, another Moses, in a sense. I'm not going, but the Lord knows this, guys, and he will raise up a, a dude like me. So Deuteronomy 18, it's saying, look, don't be like the pagan nations who look to astrology or fortune tellers for guidance. Notice Deuteronomy 18, we'll pick up in verse 14. For these nations, referring to the other nations, right, that are in the promised land, that are around, which you are about to dispossess, what do they do? Well, they listen to fortune tellers, and to diviners, right? They, they look to astrology. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this, right? These other nations, they don't get revelation. They don't get, they don't get words from me. They look to rationalism. They look to, really, the doctrines of demons. But as for you, verse 15... The Lord your God will raise up for you, notice, a prophet like me. You see that? that? There's another Moses like him. Look at the description. Keep reading. From among you. Not, not, a, not a foreigner, not someone from the outside, but someone from within, right? Homegrown. From the nation of Israel. You hear what he's saying? The Lord tells the nation that when Moses dies, he will provide guidance for them. The reason for a prophetic voice like Moses was because of the awesomeness of the Lord. Look what he says. Just as you desired, verse 16, of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. You see, the reason for a prophetic voice like Moses was because of the awesomeness of the Lord. It utterly terrified the people. God's presence was so powerful, his words so transcendent, they simply couldn't bear it. What they needed was a mediator who could approach God on their behalf and deliver his message to them. You still with me? All right, look carefully now. Look carefully in verse 15. Look carefully at the language used when describing this Moses-like spokesman. Is it singular or plural? Is this referring to a prophet or to many? Notice, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord, your God, and Horeb. We read that. Jump down to verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will, shall speak to them by command. Now, here's the deal. What do you think is going on there? Was Moses predicting one individual prophet to come or to several? Let's take a vote. Who thinks? Who thinks this, this refers just to one prophet out of a show of hands? Okay, good, yeah. Who votes that maybe this is several prophets? All right, well, like what I mean by several prophets as, as in like the prophetic institution, as like in a series of prophets over time. Okay, so for those of you who are, are erring towards that side, as in like, oh, I think this is, I think this is referring to like multiple prophets, I suppose it's worth saying that this specific text, when looked at, prophet is a singular noun, right? It's singular. But, but, when you study the same word throughout Deuteronomy, it's used collectively to address different groups of people. Still with me? So, uh, the word prophet is used as judges, it's used as priests, it's used actually as false prophets. Same word in the singular, distributed to a group of people. I know it's grammar, I know it's Mother's Day, but you still with me? <laughs> so it's singular, but the word can be used collectively. Does that make sense? The point is, the prediction here in Deuteronomy 18 likely refers to a succession of prophets whom God will raise up in Israel meaning it's describing the prophetic institution. However, there's a catch. I think there's more going on in this passage than simply describing in Israel's history different prophets that will come and go. In fact, I, I kind of want you to picture this passage like, do you remember Transformers toys? They've made cheesy movies in the last 10 years or so about them. But I loved, as a kid, playing with Transformers. I loved the slogan, Transformers, more than meets the eye. Transformers, robots in disguise, right? I loved that as a kid. But in Deuteronomy 18, I think there's more that meets the eye, so to speak. It's, I don't think it's just simply predicting a progression of prophets throughout Israel's history. Okay, track with me here. Don't, don't tune out. Look, none of the prophets who followed Moses could match him. He was sort of head and shoulders above. I mean, look how the Lord describes, he makes this pretty clear in Numbers 12. Look what he states. He says this, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Notice, not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all, key word here, I think this is, I think, again, here's a little transformer toy for you, in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So given this truth, there was an expectation 
really a created expectation, not only of this prophetic line, but an individual prophet, the prophet like Moses. I mean, isn't that why the Samaritan woman, do you remember when Jesus is talking in John with the Samaritan woman? And she goes, wow. You know, Jesus says, yeah, you, you know, go get your husband. You know, the whole story. And she goes, well, he's not here or whatever. And he goes, that's true, because the guy you're living with now isn't your husband, right? She goes, hey, you must be the prophet. Or in John's gospel as well, when Jesus does miracles, sometimes the crowd says, oh, this must be the prophet, right? There was this, there's an, this, this anticipation that, sure, there's this prophetic line, but there's going to be one guy, one bloke, one person, one particular prophet that's going to rise up. And he's going to actually be the Messiah prophet. But would be like Moses, right? To be consistent, let's not, let's not drift so far out of Deuteronomy 18, because he has to be like Moses in the sense that he's an Israelite like Moses. He would be authorized to declare God's word with authority. He would enjoy fellowship and communion with the Lord, just as Moses talked with God. He would perform miracles in public before the nations, just as Moses had done. He would be a lawgiver and mediator who'd pray on behalf of the people. Who does that sound like? Jesus. There's a Sunday school answer, right? I mean, is it, look, and is it any wonder that in Matthew's gospel, not only in the first four chapters is, it, is it's unfolding and describing who Christ is. It's, there's so many, so many parallels with the life of Moses. So many connections. And how about on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember that in Matthew 17? Who happens to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration? Is it any bloke? No, it's Moses. It's an Elijah. It's the law and the prophets brought together. And then you get this voice from heaven that echoes words very similar to this passage in Deuteronomy 18. This is my son. Listen to him. Oh, that just happens to be a coincidence. Maybe that's sloppy right. What do you reckon? No. Not if it's perfect. Not if it's God's word. Not if he's shining the spotlight on his son. Deuteronomy 18, you see, Moses is Moses, but Moses points beyond himself to a greater Moses, as to use the term greater Moses, as Hebrew says. Okay, now, some of you at this point, you're like, boom, this makes sense. You could drop the mic now. I get it. I see the bigger picture. You promised that. You came through. That's good. Other, others, you're not convinced. You're not persuaded at this point. You think, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just kind of fancy what you're doing. Kind of, you know, sort of the uh, son of an English professor gone mad or something, right? You're just, you're just trying to pick up on words and themes and you're, getting, you're all excited about Jesus, which that's cool, but it's noble. It's noble what you're trying to do, but I'm not really seeing it. All right, maybe it would persuade you. If, I'll talk to you doubters if that's the space you're living in right now. Maybe it would persuade you if I could find someone to pick up Deuteronomy 18 and say it's about Jesus. Now, when I say someone, I don't mean a modern-day scholar or theologian. I meant like, uh, like, the, like an apostle. Would that, would that sort of win the day for you? Okay, so let's, let's turn to the book of Acts. Go to Acts 3 with me. This is an amazing story. Right? Acts 3, 
there's a man who is crippled and he's begging for money and Peter is there and he says, oh, could you give me some money? And Peter says, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have Bitcoin or I don't have, um, I forget, what's the thing? Nigel, what's the, uh, what's the new hip? Thank you. Yeah, what's it called? Huh? No, that whatever, forget it. Now, what's the, uh, what's the, all the ads that's like, crypto, leave it to Mary, thank you very much. <laughs> Nigel, flop. Mary, well done. You know what I find interesting? Can I just, in the side here as you're turning there? You know what's interesting? I'm, I'm always sus. I'm always sus of ads. I'm not saying that crypto is like horrible. That's not like, you know, and he, so don't get distracted with this. But I'm always, you, you want to promote something. Like I took marketing class and you want to promote, oh, this is crypto, right? I have friends that are into this and, you know, fine, whatever. But if you, have you seen the ads where the bloke's on the beach and he's just laying back and it's like, try crypto. So, so what's that communicating? You don't need to work. If you invest into crypto, you can just hang out on the beach. I just think to me, it's like, well, I think I'm a bit sus about that. But I'm not saying crypto's bad or you're, you know, satanic if you're into crypto. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Not yet. Um, so here we go. So Acts 3. This is interesting. So uh, let's pick up here. What happens is um, this guy, he says, uh, you know, can you give me some money? And, and Peter says, I, I don't have any money, but what I do, I give to you the name of Jesus. Stand up, walk. Incredible, right? Guy goes in, he's, he's actually standing up, he's praising God. And notice in verse 8 of Acts 3, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Notice too, his, his response, and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. Now, while he, now this is obviously, if something like this happens, there's going to be a huge crowd, right? Everyone saw this guy there with the pass by him. Now he's jumping up and down. He's praising God. So, so there's a huge crowd. And, and Peter takes this opportunity to say, all right, everybody, I, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utter, utterly astonished, ran together to them, to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified the servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Fascinating words there, isn't it? Killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith and by faith in his name has been made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. Notice here, before we forget about Deuteronomy 18, I know it's starting to drift away in your mind, but it's interesting. And of all the things that Peter decides to do here, he brings back into this idea of Deuteronomy 18. It's fascinating. And now, brothers, I know that you act in ignorance as you did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing 
may one come from, uh, may come from the presence of the Lord, and that you, uh, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed, what days? These days. So what's he saying? All those prophets, they all pointed forward to what Moses was talking about. That final, isn't it interesting how he just grabbed Deuteronomy 18 and just sort of slapped it in here, or looped it as he wrote, and Peter's talking about it, that all those prophets are pointing forward to the final prophet, Christ, the Lord. It's fascinating to me. And you know what? I'll say this. I've said this before. When a New Testament author picks up an Old Testament verse and, and interprets it, he's right. I don't care who your Bible scholars are. I go with the New Testament. He's right. And so all this is pointing. Is, is, isn't this exactly why on the road, and do you remember on the road to Emmaus? Right? Jesus is walking with these two guys, and he says that all the things written about me had to come. He's pointing forward, right? All the prophets, everything that's been said is all intersecting in Christ, the final and true prophet. That brings us to our passage that was read for us by Jeanette. Let's go to Hebrews now. And let's look at Hebrews 1. Is this making sense so far? Exciting? Praise the Lord. Good. I find Hebrews 1 absolutely just stunning, amazing. Long ago... Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What language is that? Just amazing, isn't it? Jesus is not just this far little pathetic figure up in the clouds hoping that you pray a prayer to him. He holds your very life in his hands right now. The reason you're breathing breath is because Christ sustains your life. Amazing. Even though you've sinned against him this morning and yesterday, Christ sustains you. He holds the whole universe together. I mean, what are we worried about things, scuffles happening over in Europe or diseases? Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, holds all things together for his glory. And if we know him as his children, our good. I mean, it's just amazing. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, a couple things I want to say here about Christ being the final prophet. First is this, and it's, I guess it's not that profound. The Lord, we, we, could, we could, and we will, if we know him, spend all eternity never fully wrapping our minds, our hands around God. God is that superior to us in every single way. So that stated, though, what we need to know now, in terms of everything we need to know, really, about who he is and how he's governing the world and our trust in him, has been given to us and given to us, what does it say? Right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Everything we need to know about God here on this earth has been given to us in the scriptures by his son. We don't need more ideas about God in the sense that we don't... Now, don't hear me wrong. Saying, oh, that's why I don't like theology. No. That would be a really crazy thing to say. It's that the moment that you open up your mouth, let, let, can I just address something too here? All of you in this room are theologians. You may be poor ones, but you're all theologians. What I mean is, the second you say Jesus is, fill in the blank, you're doing theology. You're doing Christology. It may, not, it be, it may be lousy Christology, but it may be good Christology. You see? But the second you say, oh, Jesus is, you're doing theology. And so we, we don't need, we don't, we, we don't need extra special prophets. We have the greatest prophet who has spoken, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need extra revelations. We don't need, we don't need those things. We have Christ. We have all we need to know. The author of life himself who laid down his life and God raised him from the dead. He, and, and listen, Jesus, as the prophet, he's not just a prophet, by the way. He's the source of life, right? He, he, he actually, he, he doesn't need to hear from God. He is the son of God. He, he's not just speaking as, oh, well, the Lord said, he, oh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Who says that kind of stuff? Unless they're God. Unless they're the final and greatest prophets of all prophets. And that's Jesus. But you know, Jesus comes to you and he comes to me. And what does a prophet do if you think about the Old Testament? The prophet says, you've broken God's law. You're in darkness. That's what Jesus says to you this morning. Not one of you is good. No, not one. All of you have turned away from me. All of you have sinned. You've loved darkness instead of light. Turn to me and be forgiven and saved. Only the greatest of prophets can say things like that. We, you know, prop, the people needed prophets to wake them up, to show them that they were, in fact, in darkness. That's what our great prophet does. But he's not just coming, making you feel guilty, saying, you broke my law, whatever. He goes to the cross not only as prophet, but as priest. And then rules your heart and your life if you turn to him as king. He is our great prophet, our great high priest, 
and our great king. Let's look to him now in prayer. Lord, we really stand in awe of these truths. These are not just fancy ideas or things cooked up somewhere. This this is how you have progressively revealed yourself from Genesis on to Revelation. So, Lord, we, we look to you as our prophet, our priest, and our king, as our Lord and Savior. And, and we, we thank you and praise you for how you have shown this to us and given us everything that we need to know. We pray now, Lord, for those sitting here. Maybe the penny, is, maybe the penny dropped this morning for them. By your spirit, Lord, we, we pray that they would turn to you in repentance and faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a whole lot more can be said, but we're going to continue this on next week about Christ as our high priest. So prophet, priest, king. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. I don't know how well justice I gave to it, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing threefold office. So if you are here and you are one of the followers of Jesus, meaning you are obedient to him by turning from your sin and repentance and faith, you're anchored in him now because of that. But here, see, as a local church, though, we don't just think this is something random we're about to do. We, we want to celebrate this as a church family, this thing called communion, to commemorate, to remember, to share together in the breaking of bread and the juice. And so because it's not just something random or we're just sort of doing it at some camp, we're doing this as a local church body. And, and we, as Protestants, remember the very beginning of the sermon, we talked about Protestants, we believe that there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so if you have not placed your faith in Christ and you've not, by obedience to him, been baptized, um, we'd encourage you actually not to participate. Now, you know, here, hear this. You don't have to be baptized at this church, but by actual profession in Christ and evangelical church then we actually encourage you to turn to Jesus and to, by obedience to him to be baptized. And so if, um, if that's not you, please come talk to us. We'd love to, we'd, honestly, I'm just saying that, we would love to explain what this means to be baptized. So this time of communion is to celebrate those that are, have been obedient in baptism. And it's as an outward symbol of an inward commitment. At the same time, they're doing this right now as they're reaching out and grabbing the bread and the juice or grabbing the cracker and the juice. It's, they, they actually go together. And so we, we firmly believe that, convinced by Scripture itself, that we'd love for you to be baptized. If you're not, please come talk to us. But we, we're really trying to make it as clear as we can that we think that communion is for those that are believers in Christ and those that have, by obedience to Him, been baptized. And so for those of you that have done that in obedience, we'd encourage you, hey, participate, let's celebrate this time. If not, I'd encourage you two things. Either you're outside of Christ or you're not baptized. Why are those things? Why are you living in that space? What's going on? So rather than just kind of sit there, reflect upon those things. And uh, we'll pass out the elements, and I'll read a bit of scripture to us, and then um, we'll do some more 